You're listening to Skills World, the podcast. News, views, reviews, and interviews in association with FE News. Hello and welcome to Skills World, the podcast. I'm Tom Buick and this week I am at the Battle of Ideas Festival, which takes place every year at the Barbican Theatre in London. And quite a prestigious institution it is too. Now, the uh, theme really for this episode of Skills World is around the question of, is it harder for young people to access good jobs, skills and opportunities compared to the recent past? And there's probably no two individuals that are as qualified to talk to me about this burning question than uh, Janelle White, who is a student in chemistry, actually, in her final year at King's College London. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you. And Gareth Sturdy, who is, uh, well, he's many things because he's got a lot of experience. He's uh, been a scientist, a science teacher, physics teacher, in fact, uh, in secondary education. But he now teaches functional skills to apprentices at a hairdressing academy. Gareth, welcome. Welcome. Hello. Now, all right, we are in some ways as a workforce and as a modern society in unprecedented times because... For the first time in modern history, we actually have five generations in the workforce today. And the experts sort of divide these five generations into the traditionalists born before 1946, so essentially the wartime generation, the post-war generation known as the baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964, Generation X born between 1965 and 1976, Generation Y, also known as the Millennials, which is born between 1977, so that's the Queen's Silver Jubilee, for those that can remember that, and 1997, uh, Blair's Cool Britannia and all of that. And Generation Z, or Z, if you're listening in the United States, uh, born after 1997. So, Gareth, which uh, generation do you identify with? Oh, the hard questions first, eh? Okay, so I'm... Born in 1971, so that makes me kind of squarely Generation X. Snap. I was born in 1971 and I'm Generation X too. So, and Janelle, you? Um, I'm actually on the cusp between being a millennial and Generation Z, but I would say that I'm a millennial. And that is the hill I will fight and die on. Okay. (laughs) Well, what would be interesting as we go through this episode and we kind of talk in a bit more detail about the specific challenges and opportunities for young people, I'll ask you at the end whether you still identify being on that cusp, either being Generation Y, a millennial, or indeed Generation Z. So look, uh, post-18 education and skills training is very much a, a tale of two groups these days, really. There's 50% on average that will go down the A-level route, they'll do the GCSEs, they'll get a clutch of those, they'll do two or three A-levels, and they'll apply to university. And um, that's a a trend that has been in place for many, many years. And then there's the other 50% who will go on to a variety of things, sometimes into uh, technical vocational education, into apprenticeships, into jobs, or maybe even end up not being in education, training, or work. Gareth, you work at an academy and you specialise now in teaching functional maths and English. What, what, what would you say is the experience for, you know, the typical person that's enrolling with your academy? It's a, it's a really fascinating question and it's one of the things that really attracts me to, to, to what I do. You know, what has been the experience of these learners? I would say the majority of people I see are 
people who've had a really bad experience at school and so have left with a clutch of a small number of fairly disconnected GCSEs or other qualifications at low grades. And that's not really to do with their innate ability. It's largely to do with their school experience. Most of the people I teach, I'm in hairdressing, so most of the people I teach are girls. And a common experience that I've noticed is that um, in the period that these people were educated, the focus, of course, was on league tables. And therefore, if they weren't looking like they were going to achieve at GCSE, Hmm. uh, schools were very interested in getting them off their books as quick as possible. And that's really how they started to go into vocational training. Yeah. And I mean, talking about these, in a sense, these intergenerational differences then. So we're this Generation X, you know, basically went to our secondary schools in the mid uh, to late 1980s. And, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that the cultural expectation at that time about performing well at school, whether you did the old currency CSEs and O-levels or you were on the crossover with the new GCSEs, it wasn't arguably as high-pressured, was it, then as it is today? Because when you mentioned league tables there and the fact that that today there are some students that won't even be entered for particular examinations if, in the view of the school leadership, they're not going to perform well. And that is probably one of the biggest differences, arguably, over the last 30 years in terms of that cultural pressure on young people to succeed. I mean, you know, you would have gone through a purely GCSE and A-level route, I'm sure, in terms of your own academic pathway. To what extent do you identify with what Gareth's saying there about this sort of pressure at school now to really perform well academically? I think that from the get-go, so often people talk about GCSEs, but they miss out. So I sat SATs at school, so year two. Yeah, so these are tests that, national tests essentially, that all schools have to do. So it's kind of like GCSEs, but in maths, English and science when I sat them, but they're not really that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But when you were sitting them, especially in year six, it felt like a big deal. So the maximum level you could get was a level five. If you were really smart, you'd be entered for a level six, but it wasn't within your school's interest to submit you for a level six, because if you sat the level six paper and then didn't get it, that didn't look very good. So my school never entered children for level six ever. I didn't know that was a thing until I went to secondary school. And I felt like from then, so that I was 10, Mm -hmm. 11, there was a serious pressure to perform. You had to get a level five. And then when you got to secondary school, even before GCSEs, you'd have the sub-levels going all the way up to seven, possibly eight. And it would be like, you would do whatever to get the best grades. And if you didn't have that attitude, you just didn't really care at all. There was no middle ground. It was you either are the best or you weren't good enough, so there was no Mm. point trying. And that's really your point there about the no middle ground. I mean, another way of looking at it is essentially what's being set up for you when Mm. you're 14, 15 years old is this notion of success defined as getting, obviously, good grades in your previous SAT tests and then being entered for essentially academic-focused qualifications that presumably, from your school's perspective, I mean, I can see, obviously, you took the you know, the 50% pathway, yeah. you know, the half of under 30-year-olds that go down the A-level and university route. I mean, is is that a route you took because you thought that's absolutely the best thing for me and I want to perform 
well at that academic level? Or is it just a case of, well, that's it's what the uh, American academic Martin Crawford calls the educational monoculture. It's almost like the only choice really on the table in front of you. I think it's a mixture of both. A lot of young people want what's best for them. And the only option that seems the best for them is to go through A-levels and then go to university. I did want to, but I've never questioned why I wanted to. Hmm. And I feel like now I'm at university, there's not a lot I can do to question that. And I'm happy with where I am, but I do wonder if things would have been different and if I would have chosen a different path if I didn't have that pressure on me. Because I feel like I peaked. I was very lucky in the sense that I peaked very early as a child. So I was pushed through in gifted and talented and all of that to do my A-levels, to go to university. And that's not to say that I'm of any better ability than a lot of people who are in my class. It's just that they didn't do as well in their sats. So they weren't put in top sets. So they weren't given the best opportunities. So they weren't pushed on the path that I was. So that I mean, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you obviously were excelling very well through that pathway anyway. And as a result, you got more uh, resource and more focus um, for that. But Gareth, I mean, you used to work in the secondary school system before, if you like. Mm where you are now, where you're seeing, you know, the output of uh, the secondary school system. As a former secondary school teacher, do you think teachers themselves are alive to the fact that there are many pathways to success other than just how Ofsted might see it in terms of coming in and looking at your SAT tests, your league tables, uh, you know, your performance tables in relation to GCSEs? I mean, do you think there's just a bit of a culture around how schools themselves are measured. So it's, you know, it's not about blaming teachers or blaming schools for pushing young people through these examinations. It's just a case of that's how the system is set up at the moment. That's definitely how the system is set up. But I, I do think there's a broader cultural shift towards, if you like, a data culture amongst teachers. So I, I don't think teachers, by and large, have a different way of seeing them, seeing things, and, and it's being driven by an accountability process. That may have been how it started out, but definitely now I think teachers have a particular way of viewing what educational development is, and I think it's hugely data-driven. So to go back to Janelle's point um, about the SAT stage, I think you're absolutely right, because what happened is the, the primary schools would produce their SATs data, pass it on mm. to the secondaries, who would then do exactly as you're saying, you know, oh, this is a level six child, whereas this is a level four child, make their decisions then, often setting up those pathways to GCSE. But the crucial thing was that then the child couldn't appear to go backwards. So if they came in at level four, whatever experience the child or the teacher had uh, pedagogically in that situation, that child would have to then next report go up to level four C, level 4B, level 4A, level 5. And this, this whole railroad track, you know, established itself that it was very difficult to get off when you were on it. So, and, and that... I mean, that's a good analogy, isn't it, a railway track? Because when you look at a railway track, unless there's really an interchange, it's, it's a linear experience. Yeah. And I think that neatly sort of brings me on to then looking at that key transition point at, at key stage four. As we know, the stats tell you, Roughly speaking, half of that cohort will go seamlessly through A-levels and onto university. I think there's a, now a big challenge around 
when you look at, for example, levels of graduate underemployment, so this is essentially graduates in jobs that traditionally would have been non-graduate jobs. I think there's a, you know, so I don't want to give any impression that somehow just because you've gone through that traditional A-level route, that then it's an easier time when you kind of get into your early 20s, because I think actually, again, looking at these intergenerational inequalities in the workplace and what the experts will tell you is that particularly for you know, your generation, actually, whether it's the generation uh, Y or generation Z, you actually face very specific challenges around uh, wage expectations, getting on the housing ladder. So, you know, it's not a straightforward case of the university graduates have a better time of it than the non-university graduates, but arguably those that haven't gone through that route have it even tougher because of the fact that there's been arguably this displacement going on of what were traditionally non-graduate jobs that are now taken up by graduates. I mean, do you know, I mean, in terms of looking ahead, you know, to your eventual graduation, mm-hmm. what's your mindset going into that? I mean, do you feel quite hopeful and positive about the future or, you know, do you look around at all these new stories about the challenges since the financial mm-hmm. crash for... Gen um, Y and Gen Z and think, oh, God, it's, it's, it's going to be really tough when I get out of the I'm university. in a bit of a weird position because I'm both a postgrad and an undergrad. Yeah. So I do a integrated master's. So I'm doing my master's, but I haven't yet graduated. Right. But everyone... That's I, you're in your fourth year. Yeah, right? that's okay. why I'm in my fourth yeah. year. So everyone I know has graduated. So mm. most of the people that I went to university with or have met during university, or people my age who went to university have all graduated, and I don't know anybody with a graduate level drop. Like, mm. and I'm, a, I do chemistry. Everybody I know who hasn't gone into further education, who has a job, is doing full-time what they did as a part-time job during university, right. and that's quite common. Other than graduate schemes, the biggest thing I found is that you have no idea how to even navigate. Mm getting a job. Again, it's about this idea of the transmission mechanism, you know, from kind of compulsory schooling into then further education and then into the workplace is, it's very difficult, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, okay, sure, there's job centres there if you happen to be unemployed that can provide some advice, but that's not the same as good quality careers advice, saying mm-hmm. you're sixth form or good quality advice at university or even relationships with employers. I mean, I guess one question that I'd like to ask you, um, Janelle, is, is, is that if, for example, you could get as qualified as clearly you're going to be up to actually level, use the jargon, you'll be up to, I think, level six, level seven. Mm-hmm. Six is a bachelor's degree, seven is a, a master's degree in terms of the um, UK qualifications framework. If you could have gone through, let's say when you left your A-levels, you could have gone into an apprenticeship with a, a pharmaceutical company yeah that essentially was saying to you, right, you'll get exactly the same degree, you'll get exactly the same integrated masters at level seven, but it will be completely through a learning and earning route. Would you have been attracted by that kind of offer as opposed to just going full-time as a student? Um, I would have been attracted to it, but I wouldn't have done it. Right. Because why? I think that, um, so this is something I'm speaking about later, is that I think often apprenticeships, this is my personal opinion, is that apprenticeships, are of an equal, obviously, as you said, like level six, level seven, they are of an equal standing to a degree, but I don't think they're of an equal social value yet. Yeah, that's really interesting because coming back to some of these cultural points then, do you feel for those that take the apprenticeship route for all the advances in recent years to, as you say, to have equivalents Mm -hmm. with levels? I mean, we didn't have degree apprenticeships, for example, five years ago. We do now. 
are you saying that in terms of your experience from your sort of generational perspective, yes. there's still this sense of the degree has the higher social I value mean, than the it's apprenticeship? It's not even about the degree. I think that that's maybe... It's about the experience you've gone through then? No, I think this is maybe something that I think is often overlooked by, I don't want to say older generations, but... Sorry, <laughs> Gareth and I plead guilty so, for that one. Yeah, yeah, I think this is something that's overlooked is that maybe university sits in a different context now to what it did before, is that it's not about having a degree. It's not even about what classification necessarily, but it's what classification, where you got it from where you studied, who you studied with. Like there are so many subcategories to how much value is your degree worth? And that's something that I felt like I learned being at King's and meeting people who've come from entirely different backgrounds to me. So I grew up in like a very working class town in the West Midlands. Hmm. An apprenticeship or university were both viable, equal options. Going to university, there is no competition I've realised, like, people will go to King's, which is one of the best universities in the world, and be like, oh, I got here because, like, I was too thick to get into anywhere else. I'm like, this is basically useless. But, like, it's okay. I'll do my postgrad at, like, Cambridge, Mm. and that'll be better. So I think that I was sold as a young person that an apprenticeship would be an equal option to a degree. And going to university and meeting people who came from a very different experience of education, there is no comparison. So there you go. I mean, that's good old British class structure then in the end, <laughs> driving uh, a lot of the cultural value around education. I mean, you're now working with a cohort of young people for whom they haven't gone through that route, but nevertheless, they are undertaking uh, apprenticeships. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily going to be paid a huge amount, but obviously there are, just like there are celebrity YouTubers and everything else, there are celebrity hairdressers around who do earn big bucks. I mean, does that sound a bit depressing to you that we still, you know, for all the all the advances that have been made in recent years around reforming the apprenticeships, there's always going to be that. Uh, and actually, you know, should we even try this whole kind of parity of esteem? I mean, actually, what you know, Janelle's talking about is, in the end of the day, the education experience is not the same as apprenticeship. We shouldn't try and pretend that they are both the same. But what's your perspective on that, Gareth? I'm very excited actually about the way things are but I say that completely aware that um, everything's in flux at the moment and there's a great deal of change and and I can say that as a middle-aged guy interested in education if I were in my 20s stepping into that arena I would completely be confused but the reason I think it's it's exciting so I have two children and they're 10 and one's about to be 13 and, and I've been saying for a while I'm not particularly encouraging them to think about university at the moment, okay? Yeah. Because of that apprenticeship or, or, or other work-based route. And, and I think the most exciting thing about the current situation is it demonstrates that technical fixes of the system are not necessarily going to deliver hmm. educated, skilled people. Hmm. Um, and I think this is a real question, you know, for people like yourself, Tom, really, is if, If the content of these courses isn't correct, isn't, in my opinion, educative, then it doesn't matter how you do it, you're still going to end up with people who who have something that is not the value that it's made out to be. And that's really important, I think, when we look at um, university degrees, because just because lots of people, more than 50% of people might end up going to university, 
we've got to be really careful that that doesn't change what a university degree means and then that in itself affects every other kind of qualification. Well, let's look at that in terms of changes in the perception and also the value of university degrees. I mean, you know, again, not your average person is in all the statistics around wage premium data and actually some of the quite extensive destination surveys that are now um, you know, commissioned by the government, but also undertaken by uh, reputable independent think tanks like the Institute for Fiscal Studies. But one of the studies that I saw recently that really, really um, stuck out for me was the fact that looking at the wage premium, you know, i.e. the additional monies that you can expect to earn as a result of having a university degree, but comparing our generation, Gareth, so mm. those born after 1970 with actually those born after 1990 has found that average earnings for that um, for graduates has halved mm. just in that period. So I absolutely take what you're saying, Janal, about you know, there's always going to be, if you like, cultural capital, social value attached to a university degree or, or, or a university experience. And actually, I'd be the first person to argue that actually academic learning for its own sake, learning for its own sake is absolutely fine in a civilised democratic society. I don't think this is an argument I'm advancing that's saying you've only got to take qualifications and skills that are relevant to today's labour market. Because as we know, with up to a third of jobs that potentially could be replaced through this so-called fourth industrial revolution, it wouldn't be a great skill strategy, would it, if we were just focusing young people on only doing the jobs of today. But there's clearly something going on in our post-18 education environment where despite the 50% now that are going through university, the paradox for me is we're sending more students to university than ever before, but we're not seeing the corresponding rise in productivity and living standards. So someone somewhere has sold a dream about, you know, the knowledge economy and it's going to be great for our country in terms of our economy, but actually the, the headline stats just don't don't show that. Because the- is that something we should be worried about or actually do we just... You know, fall back and admit that effectively what we're saying now is that young people are effectively chilled until the age of 24. We need as a state to be supporting them full time through education and in that sense also living at home and not worry about it so much. Or should we actually be trying to attack the issue of opportunity and getting people onto that, you know, things like the housing ladder or, you know, getting into higher level skills through more of a work based route? I think we we have to get sort of our ducks in a row, as it were. And I think that starts, first of all, with if if we are wanting to send large numbers, the majority of people to university, then we should be absolutely clear with them about what the purpose of that university degree is. Now, it's no surprise to me that if you predicate university degrees on on wage power once you've got the degree, all that's going to do is cause a, a bit of a crash in wage earning after you get a degree, because that's not the purpose. And and everything that gave those graduates extra value ends up getting removed from Hmm. the degree in the first place. So trying to fix the economy by trying to get more people to to have degrees isn't going to work in my view. That doesn't mean that we just forget about how to fix the economy with the the knowledge and skills of our young people. It just means use the right tool to do it, which is why I'm excited about the current innovations in other ways of getting people to a a level four, five, six qualification, but not necessarily through university. Yeah, because look, I mean, you know, I'll be honest with you as someone the same age as you. I mean, my ideal scenario for my own 
teenage son is that he will genuinely, by the time he's 16, 17, see a learning and earning pathway opening up, which may or may not include a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. It depends on what occupational route that he decides to take. But nevertheless, that that pathway is there and is in front of him. And it's about actually coming out at the end of it, not faced with what our current graduates are faced with, £54,000 on on average university debt. And I know, obviously, Janan, you'll tell me this. There's a big debate about, well, is it really a debt because you don't pay it back until you get above a certain amount of earnings? So it's not like a kind of credit card debt in that traditional sense. But, you know, from your point of view, Janan, do you not think we're just putting a millstone around the necks of generation, their necks, your neck? I feel like I'm a bit of an expert in, uh, in student debt. Because well, I'm, when I graduate, I'm going to be in over £70,000 worth of student debt. So that's what the student loans company will have on the ledger yep. that you, that Janelle Plus, White owes. that's not including the interest, the but okay. they very, very kindly ask me. Which is me, about 6%. Yeah, so yeah. every year when I reapply, they're like, are you aware of the interest? Are you okay? And I'm like, well, I don't really have a choice. So, sure. But I was encouraged at college to not see it as a debt, but to see it as an investment. And my teacher actually made a really good point, which was like, on average, you're probably going to spend more on your phone contract or on streaming service contracts per month than you are going to be paying back your student debt. I don't really think about the debt too much because I know I'm never going to pay it back. <laughs> like, we call it like monopoly money. Like, I think for students, if you can afford to go to university, you'll go. Coming from a low socioeconomic background the only concern I had was where Hmm. I'd go to university that's when money does become an issue but otherwise I don't think that debt is really a deterrent often because it's not bailiffs aren't going to be knocking down my door taking all of my belongings until I pay it back so I don't really think about it too often that's true and you certainly won't have to pay it back until of course you earn above a certain amount of money or it's around it's around about 22,000 pounds now but uh, do do you not think though potentially the fact you know, even if it's just in the back of your mind, mm-hmm. that that's £70,000, which, by the way, up until, you know, over a 40-year period, because interest is added at the moment, will mm-hmm. obviously grow more and more with compound interest. But if you do land that fantastic management job as a chemist on £100,000 a year, <laughs> yeah. it's not the bailiffs, obviously, that come knocking at that point. It is... Obviously, the government comes knocking at yeah. that point because it says, well, you know, you're now £70,000 in debt We're to us. You're going to have to pay that off. And that's like, in effect, paying a high level of tax, isn't it? Yeah, so we're encouraged I- to think of it as like a graduate tax. Yeah. To me, it's an investment. I would do it again. Even if tuition went up, I would probably still go to university. So I don't see it as a waste of money. And I, I, am, like, I do appreciate, like, as you said, with apprenticeships, there are other ways. This is just me personally. But... I value the experience I've had at university. I feel like I've been able to build a professional network and use resources and have resources and opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise, which made it worth it. So do you actually think loaning students £9,500 a year to cover their fees with maintenance loans on top of that is actually a good system? Sounds um, like I think, you I do. think it's an awful system. I would, right. I would like to not have the debt. I think that... So, okay, so even though you can see the logic around an investment, if you do earn well, therefore do well in life, you'll pay more through your paycheck at the end of the month. That's like a return back on the investment to society for backing you in the first place, I guess. But what you're saying to me is that if if there was a choice, if there was a policy choice right now between 
our education being a free good, i.e. paid out, because it's not free in the sense it's got to be paid yeah. for somehow, but paid out of general taxation, would you go for that model over and above the student loans company option? I think that, option? personally, I don't agree with having to pay tuition for universities. I think that we should all have open access, everybody regardless of background, right. to education. However, in a system where we do have tuition fees, I think that loans... Because we're not going to have grants, I think that loans are a good system because they make education accessible for more people than if I didn't have loans. For example, yeah. international students who don't get the loan, right. only privileged international students can come over and study mm. our institutions. Indeed, there's no cap now on domestic students. So if you're wanting to go to university effectively, the government will underwrite those tuition fee loans and maintenance loans. Gareth, you and I are from a generation, I mean, I eventually went to university via a, a kind of a night school route as a, uh, I say, mature student. I was still only 21, 22 when I eventually got off to university. But, you know, we, we, we didn't pay fees. It was open access, as uh, Janelle was saying. Yes, you, you got a couple of grand even from the government in my day uh, towards your maintenance grant. That probably sounds like a luxury now uh, yeah. for you. Uh, but even <laughs> at the time, of course, we were still out on the demos and the marching, pleading poverty and saying the government should give us more. Uh, what, what's your perspective on this great debate about, you know, should higher education be free at the point of use or actually do we need to be fair to, frankly, as we started this interview, the other 50% for whom they are either aren't going to or never will go to university, but they're still having to pay even if it's through the loan system, it still comes out of the general taxpayer fund. Is it, you know, are we fair to them? I mean, it's the classic, you know, refuse attendant who's never been to university. Why should they pay their taxes to provide a free higher education to people like Janal? So it's a, not, by far not enough work has been done on, on thinking through how these things end up distorting the system. So as, as kind of first principles, I think it's very important that we as a society value education so that the dustman doesn't feel that, that, that lots of people going to university is somehow bad for him or that he shouldn't be responsible for it. I think we, it's a societal issue. We're all responsible for education and we all should value it regardless of our own particular individual path through it. That's important, but it's also important that it's becoming more and more expensive and that we have to seriously consider who pays and how pays, uh, how they pay, sorry. And um, that, you know, th there isn't just money coming from a magic pot to pay for the whole thing. So, it, it, I mean, it is really complex, but I'm probably going to sound like a really old kind of fuddy-duddy about this, but I'm a little bit uh, worried about the possibility of this loan situation for someone like yourself, Janelle, to then distort how you view the value of your degree in terms of what follows. Because if you're getting a job to service a loan, which I'm not saying you would necessarily, that's your only criteria. Yeah, but you might decide not to get a job in order not to pay the loan. So yeah, but or, I mean, or get one at a lower level. Yeah, But, um, but, but you know, those decisions yeah. are then affecting how you proceed. And it's not the same as you having a job, having a career, building up a life plan and then thinking, do you know what, I think I could take a 50 grand or more 70 grand loan yeah. now. You know, mm. the loan comes first and then all the decisions that follow. And why I sound like an old funny daddy is that at this point in my life, I wish I'd made other financial decisions when I was younger, because frankly, as you get older, you, you see these things in a different way. And I don't yeah. mean to sound condescending mm -hmm. in the least. I think investments, and you, 
I have to say at this point that if I were in your position, I would do exactly the same thing because you're, you're sort of being rational about it. And there's that situation that you've got to deal with and you're dealing with it in a very intelligent way, which is to say, okay, calm down everybody. Let's not think that my entire life has been ruined because I have a big loan. Mm-hmm. I shall see it in a positive sense of investment. I do that, but I do think that that's probably not serving young people in the best way because I think, as I say, investments should be made on the basis of a, a far, far more uh, settled picture. Yeah. You know, your, your loan comes first and then everything else comes after. Yeah, I, just I, briefly. Okay, I do want to say, I've, I've never thought I'd end up in a position where I'm defending loans. <laughs> <laughs> I feel pleased I'm yeah. you to that point. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think the one thing is that why I don't like to focus on the bad the negatives of the loan is that we make this decision when we're very young so you make the decision often to go to university when you're 18 and one thing that I've noticed is that I found that students from where I'm from were put off going to university because they were constantly fed this narrative of you're going to be weighed down with debt you know there's no point um there are other alternatives but those other alternatives were never given to them mm-hmm. the main moral of the story was just don't go to university it's a waste of money which i think is unfair you should have the choice between do i go to university or do i do an apprenticeship like thing and both of them end up in the same place and are of equal value and you should be able to make that choice on what you want to do not what you have mm. to do do you know i think that's a brilliant summary for this whole <laughs> podcast <laughs> that it should be about a choice and pathways that lead to many different routes to success, not necessarily to borrow a term, Gareth, from the previous discussion about rail tracks and linear Mm. education, something it seems far more integrated in the future. But this debate, no doubt, about who pays, who benefits, what that relationship should be between the employer, the individual and the state, I'm sure will rumble on uh, for many, many months and years to come. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So thanks again to uh, Janelle White, uh, Gareth Sturdy for joining Skills World, the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. you. Sign up to Skills World at www.fenews.co.uk 